Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazz War Report. Ladies and gentlemen, America is in the longest war of its entire history, but most Americans don't even know it. And America now needs leaders who must decide if we want to win or if we will continue trying just not to lose. The game has to change because the rules of the game are changing. And on this show, we're going to be talking about just that. My guest is coming out with a book called Game Changes, which really will tell us why we are not winning and, more importantly, how to win this war against terrorism onshore and offshore. And he should know, because he spent 23 years in the armed special forces involved in foreign internal defense, counterinsurgency, and stability missions. He served in the special ops for over 18 years. He's been a Green Beret for over 15 years in combat deployments in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Panama, Iraq, and Afghanistan. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show the author of Game Changes, former Green Beret, and the founder of the Stability Institute, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Man, welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, Vip, what's going on, buddy? Thanks for having me on. Welcome back, sir. How have you been? Really good, really good, man. I mean, busy, um, you know, working hard on the book uh, with the release coming up just next week. Uh, you know, really writing right up until the last moment with it. We went back and did some work on ISIS to get that in there. Uh, but between that and, you know, working with Veteran Transition, I'm here at my buddy Romy Camargo's uh, rehab center, who mm. you did an interview with. And so just staying busy with getting our guys ready to go over and fight this long war and then trying to find ways to help bring them home. And that's that's what I'm busy doing. Well, congratulations on the book, sir, Game Changes. Um, you said it's out next week. Which day? Yeah, it comes out. The, uh, the, uh, the official launch is uh, September 9th uh, next week. So a week, I guess it's a week from today. Uh, that it'll be out on Kindle. Um, and then also we'll start shipping pre-order books. People have been pre-ordering for a while at mm. the uh, thegamechangersbook.com. So books will start shipping on the 9th. Now, it's very. is it coincidental or was it purposely planned to be very close to September 11th? Well, you know, we really worked hard to get it uh, on, the, on, the, on the eve of September 11th for a whole lot of reasons, Vip. Um, as you know, you know very well, uh, it's just an important day for us to all reflect on it. So it is, it is by design. So what inspired you to write Game Changers? Well, you know, really, it, it's been in the works for a while. Really, it was about four years that I've been working on the book. And it was mm. it was fighting this war, frankly, uh, on 9-11-2001. I lost a very dear friend in the Pentagon. Uh, his name was Cliff, and he was killed, you know, uh, at his workstation there along with thousands of other Americans. And, you know, I spent the next nine years really just avenging his death. I was so angry. I was angry at the death of all of our citizens, and, and I just wanted payback. And and so many of our military men and women went over and, and pursued that approach for almost a decade. And it was really around 2009 when we looked around and saw that there were more Taliban than when we started. Um, that something wasn't working. And, and when this program, I was you know, blessed to be part of this bottom-up program that you and I are going to talk about, that's the subject of my book, Game Changers. That's when I really started realizing that something needed to be written about this. But, but honestly, Vip, it was when my son Cody, uh, my 17-year-old boy who's a senior, said, Dad, I want to be a Green Beret like you, mm. that I fully decided that that was when I was going to write the book. Because we didn't finish this thing, and he's going to have to finish it, and he deserves to hear the story of what will actually win this war. Who do you want this book? Who do you want to who, who should be reading this book? 
Yeah, so when I started the book, obviously I wrote it in mind, you know, I was thinking about special operators, you know, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Marine Mm. Special Ops, uh, conventional military guys. And then as I kept writing, I saw that it had a lot of applications to law enforcement, um, even here in the United States, who are dealing with uh, communities that are marginalized from the government and that are frankly being stirred up by outside rabble-rousers. You know, and so it started to expand to law enforcement. And then... Um, I actually stepped back from it, Vip, and I realized that, you know, for so long, we have outsourced this war to the shadows. We've delegated it to special ops and intelligence personnel, and for the most part, we really have not had a good conversation with the American people about what we're up against. And as we look at the rise of ISIS and how they're on our doorstep, I really went back and expanded this book for the American people. I want I want Americans to be able to read this book, to consider it, to share it. So I actually revised it, mm. uh, and I've even included included a business private sector angle for these corporations that work abroad uh, to work bottom up. So it's for anyone who has an interest in stability and and realizes that something's not working in this war. Something not working in this war. Taking that forward, has America truly ever won a war in its history, in the truest sense of the word? Yes, they have. Mm. Um, You know, a war has gone through a range of evolutions, hasn't it? I mean, when you think about the way that America has fought her wars from, from you know, from the revolution uh, all the way up until modern times, and, Mm. and the reality, Vip, is that wars are won, you know, based on the goals that are achieved, that are that are established, and then the the strategy that's implemented to achieve those goals. So, for example, if you look at World War II, you know, the the, the goal of that war was obviously to to defeat the Nazis and the fascists that were trying to uh, dominate the West. And we did that. We changed the collective behavior of entire nations. But it was a collective effort, though. I'm talking about America in isolation. I mean, I'll give you an example. For me, you know, war very simply is good versus bad, good conquers bad. Okay, That's it's right. obviously not that simple anymore. It's become a lot more complicated thanks to the politicians. But if, if right. you were to ask me an example of a war in, in, in the last few decades, I would say the Falklands War. Argentina right. invaded Falklands. United Kingdom came over, defeated them. They went back. That, that to me was yeah. a simple outright victory. Do we have outright victories anymore? Yeah, I do, but I, 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 we have. But I think it's all in how we define those victories. I mean, for example, look at Colombia. Look at the Philippines. Look at El Salvador. Those were small wars by hmm. definition. Are they, were um, they covert? were very clear. Were they covert operations not. more than just a war? They, they included covert operations. They included diplomacy. They hmm. included economic development. In fact, they included all of our instruments of power. But here's what's key, Vip. We had made a very clear decision on what our desired outcome was. We were overt about it, and we stayed focused on it. It took time. Mm. It was, you know, it was not as fast as we would want. But if you were to look at Colombia today, first on where it was in the 1990s with Pablo Escobar, and when I was a young Green Beret working down there, it's a totally different country. Uh, so we can achieve victories, yes, wins in these types of incursions. It's not as clear-cut. It's harder. It takes longer. But we've got to get our head around the fact that to win a war today uh, means being very clear on what we want to achieve. And here's what I worry about, Vip, is that I actually had a very senior government official tell me 
Um, you know, I, I'm the subtitle of my book is Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. And I had a very senior government official tell me, Scott, we can't defeat these guys. We can't win. And I'm telling you, if our politicians are thinking that way, we're in trouble. Yes, because I think someone in the FBI said that in, in, in the press a few days ago, that they admitted well, the direct, that we yeah. are, are not winning. Right, he did. And, and I, look, I think it's okay to step back and say we're not winning. Uh, that's one thing, because at every point in America's history, we, every war we've ever fought, there was a point where we were losing. And we had to step back, just like in a basketball game or a football game. There's a point where you're down, you step back, you reevaluate your strategy, you adapt and you change it, and you, then you go towards victory. I mean, mm. that happens. That happens in life, doesn't it? I mean, we, there's times where we're losing in life and we have to change. That's okay. But I think to just start from the beginning and just say, uh, you know what, we can't win. Well, I just I don't I don't buy that. Um, well, I, I think it's very demoralizing to the public. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think he should have been politically correct and say we continue to fight, um, right. and and let the critics establish that we are losing and not come from him. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if, for example, if you know, when it comes to ISIS. You know, one of the things that when it comes to defeating ISIS, the way that I define victory in my book is that we render Islamist violent extremists irrelevant in the eyes of the local population where they establish safe haven to the degree that they cannot project their power globally. Now, I think that to me is a very clear, achievable definition of victory. That does not include, you'll notice, establish a Jeffersonian democracy in a tribal land. <laughs> That's not part of victory. No, but you um, use the you know, word fact, irrelevant, make them irrelevant. Why don't you just say wipe them out? Well, Put them six feet underground. Well, if you try to wipe them out, we've tried that for 14 years. I mean, we've tried to come from the top and bomb them and drone strikes and night raids. And the reality is because these guys established themselves within marginalized populations of tribal society, when you come from the top down and all you try to do is trip them or, or to basically wipe them out or shoot your way to victory, what they end up doing is just burying into the population like a tick and a dog. In 2006, VIP, Antonio Gustosi estimated that we were spending $16 million for every Taliban killed in Afghanistan. Now, that is a return on investment that is completely unacceptable in any war, especially when you look at where the Taliban are positioned today to take over the country. It's just it's going to render us fiscally insolvent if we continue on this path, which is exactly, by the way, what ISIS and al-Qaeda want. They want to draw us into this type of attrition warfare where we essentially expend all of our, our financial capital – on a fleeting enemy that is buried within a sympathetic populace. You talk about financial capital. You know, when we invaded Iraq, we never took the oil. Why not? Because, you know, when Donald Trump said he's going to make countries pay for using our strength, why did we never take the oil in Iraq? That would have well, sort of kept the costs down. Yeah, I don't have a problem with, 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 with countries that are, you know, host countries uh, sharing the financial burden of, of, of warfare, especially when we got, come in and bail them out. I mean, I think that should be a necessity. I mean, as far as taking the oil, you know, I think if you want to try to, you know, we, we want to build capacity in a place like Iraq and mm -hmm. Afghanistan, where essentially they can stand on their own and, and, and violent extremists is an inhospitable land to them. So if you take their infrastructure, that's very difficult to, to basically push them back. But I do believe that there is merit, you know, in taking that away, in, in, in at least sharing some of that cost. I think it's very, very important. You, you, your book is an expression of your frustration as to why America's not winning the war, right, in some ways? It, it, it is, yeah. It is but, a frustration, yeah, for but, sure. 
you say we can win if we change the game. Yeah, you I mean do. we and, need to change the rules of the game? I think we need to step back and, first of all, reevaluate the game we're in. I, I think part of the problem is that we don't understand the game that we're playing. What are the we not is, understanding? Well, well, first of all, let me give you an example. Um, you know, violent extremists today set up their, their safe the way they the way they attack us, the way they strategically influence us, Vip, is they set up their safe havens in these fragile governments like Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. And they set up shop in places where these fragile governments cannot reach. And it's usually clan and tribal societies that are beyond the reach of that little government, and they're marginalized. They don't trust the government, so they go in there from the bottom up, and they co-opt these societies. Okay, Then from there, they project and inspire violence across the ocean over to us. And it's a very effective model that they have exported from Afghanistan to these other countries. Here's the problem. The way that we respond to that is, hey, let's go get these guys. Let's uh, come from the top down. We're going to establish a Jeffersonian democracy in this fragile government. We're going to prop up their military, and we're going to project power down into these tribal areas. Well, in reality, what that does is it plays right into the hands of the extremist who is out in these tribal areas saying, hey, this government doesn't trust you. know, You don't trust them. They don't trust you. They're out to get you. And look at the Americans coming in and helping them target you. Uh, a case in point of this, VIP, would be Iraq. Look at how ISIS has moved in from Syria and established themselves in the marginalized Sunni communities. And what they've done is they've, whis- they've whispered in the ears of the Sunnis and said, listen, look at this Shia-dominated government in Iraq. They can't stand you. They're trying to wipe you out. Uh, the Americans are bombing them on, your, on their behalf or bombing you on their behalf. We're your only hope. And so that narrative resonates in that local area. And because we overinvest in these fragile, corrupt governments and we only come from the top down, we basically push the clans and tribes right into their arms and give them everything they want. You know, let's be a little realistic as well. I mean, we have limited resources. Like you said, you know, killing each member on the ISIS uh, costs about $16 million, yeah? Now, right. Can do we have enough resources to train our soldiers to go into the grassroots level? Because that brings about its own danger. Yeah, that's a great question. Here's the thing. Let me let me throw this one at you. Mm. Um, when you look at the way look at the way that we responded after 9/11. I mean, we sent literally hundreds of thousands of troops into Afghanistan, mm. and then hundreds of thousands of troops into Iraq. Um, and what we did was we applied this industrial age mindset that we need a large footprint of forces on the ground to basically fight a counterinsurgency campaign. And frankly, it failed. It failed in Afghanistan and it failed in Iraq. If you, if, what I'm proposing here is actually less blood, less treasure less of a footprint. It's going to take longer, but we put in specialized advisors like Green Berets, which is what I did, or Marine Special Ops, or even Navy SEALs, and we work out in the outlying marginalized areas on the fringes, and we go into areas that are already resisting. These are tribal areas that don't like extremists in their area any more than they like us being in there, and we work from the bottom up with a smaller footprint. It takes longer, but what you actually do is you're you're, you're reestablishing 
resiliency VIP at the civil society level that is a natural antibody to, ex- to extremism. It, it, it's a clan society that will frankly stand on its own and push back if empowered. That is less blood. That is less treasure. Uh, and, and, and it is much more acceptable to the people in those areas. Let them do the fighting so we don't have to fight them here. We've done it in El Salvador. We've done it in the Philippines. We've done it in Colombia. The problem is, for whatever reason, after 9-11, we got it in our heads that the only way to fight this war is with 250,000 young Americans you know, in up-armored vehicles sucking down roadside bombs. And it's not going to work. It'll never work. It just plays into their narrative. But if I was the commander-in-chief and I was to follow your advice, initially what I'm going to have to do is send in large numbers of military personnel, fully armed, to go to each village. Because I cannot send in just two Green Berets. They would get killed. Well, you're asking great questions, but first of all, let's be clear about something. We're going to have to kill large numbers of ISIS and al-Qaeda. I don't want to come across in any way Mm. that I'm conveying that this is some kind of kumbaya uh, approach. It's not. You're going to have to kill irreconcilable elements on the battlefield. What I'm suggesting is that you're going to kill them in the context of a broader strategy that is palatable and acceptable in the civil society where they operate. And the reality is all of these foreign military VIPs, foreign militaries VIP, when we go in and work with them, they are incompetent and incapable of reaching out into these areas. It's always been local tribes and clans that have handled their own affairs. Green Berets, by design, operate in 12-man teams. They have medics, engineers, weapons experts. They are designed to operate on the fringes. Very few people know this, but after 9-11, it was only about 90 Green Berets that went into Afghanistan, 90. Mm -hmm. And in less than 90 days, threw the entire Taliban out of the country by allying with the Northern Alliance and the tribes. They are combat multipliers who work from the bottom up. But there have got to be more clans and tribes than there are Green Berets, right? And there are. I mean, there are literally tens of thousands of tribes and clans Mm. in all of these areas where ISIS and al-Qaeda set up shop that do not want them there. They are actively trying to resist. Logistically, I mean, you're going to have to send in military force all at once, um, take out the Taliban, take out ISIS, and then bring in specialized ops like you guys to start putting some foundations at the grassroots level. Yeah, well, there is going to have to be a hybrid model. I mean, look, as long as there are nation states in the world, we will always have to work with mm. foreign militaries. You know, we'll have to build capacity with them. We'll have to work with the with the police forces of those countries. And so, yes, you'll always have to have some conventional presence. What I'm suggesting is we don't need anywhere near the military footprint that we have used in Iraq and Afghanistan for the last 14 years. It was total overkill. It was ineffective. And frankly, um, it, it was all the Americans doing all the fighting and it didn't work. It actually pushed the tribal people away from the government even further. So you do need a hybrid model. I think you need much less conventional firepower. I mean, American firepower is really good. Uh, You could do it with much less than what we've traditionally taken over there. And here's one other factor to consider. Hmm. In every one of these countries like Afghanistan and Iraq, they have a special operations capability that we've helped build and start. And so, for example, in Afghanistan, you have 
Afghan special forces who operate in 15-man teams instead of our 12-man teams, and they have a total of 72 teams. If you were to train and advise Afghan special forces to move out into the rural areas and work from the bottom up and do the right thing when no one's looking, that's 72 areas that Afghan special forces could cover down on. And, you know, I mean, when you think about it, that's how you work yourself out of a job. That's how you responsibly hand over a conflict to a country. Uh, and we're not doing that. We're just going in there right now and working just with the, you know, just with the conventional militaries of that country. And those guys can't even get beyond the pavement. Um, so there's a way to do this. We've done it for decades. Um, what, I, what I wrote this book for is to, to do what we're doing right now, Vip, is to have these kinds of conversations with thoughtful questions like what you're asking, because a lot of the uh, perceptions that Americans have right now are misperceptions. There's actually a way forward that we've done before. And it's worked. It's worked. It's worked. In my, fact, my... I will tell you, in Afghanistan, hmm. um, in 2013, um, this program called Village Stability Operations was cited by Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar as the greatest threat facing the Afghan insurgency. Here's my concern. You go in and, and everything is fine. You train them and this and that. At some point, you're going to have to leave. If and when you do leave, what's going to prevent ISIS from coming back in, from Taliban to coming back in? What, what's going to prevent that from happening? Right. So that's a great question. Let me back it up to understand that in all of these areas mm. where ISIS and al-Qaeda set up shop, think of it as uh, top and bottom. At the top of these societies like Iraq and Afghanistan, you have a formal government like we know here in the United States. Well, right. that government only controls about 20 percent of the land and the population. The rest of the 80 percent is tribal or clan. That means it's bottom up. That means that communities and tribes handle their own defense, their own agriculture, their own economic development. Uh, they don't rely on their own dispute resolution. They don't rely on the government for that. They never have. So the reality is what keeps these extremists out of there, to be quite honest with you, are the local civil society mechanisms at the community level. It's not the government. It never was the government. But we're over-investing everything in these governments. It's much less likely that what we did in Iraq will stick, what we did in Afghanistan will stick with this Jeffersonian democracy construct. I mean, look at, it, look at how fast ISIS came back into Iraq, and we left in 2011. They came back in and totally dominated the Sunni societies. What I'm suggesting is come from the bottom up as well and help these damaged tribal societies get back on their feet. They're the ones that are going to push back. They're the ones that are going to deny entry what, to these extremist groups. What does help look like? If you were to break it down, what does help look like to these tribal societies that would give us their loyalty? Well, first of all, understand that you're not going to be able to go to every village in Iraq or every village in Syria. But if we learn to look at the human terrain in a way that we understand where there are resistors at play, there are tribes and clans that are naturally resistant to these extremist elements. And you, go, you start there. You start there and you work with these elements from the bottom up who are already resisting, and you go in there with maybe, uh, for example, uh, a 12-man special forces team can actually go into one village and help a, you know, a fairly large tribe uh, push back. Let me give you an economy of scale. Jim Gant in the book American Spartan, 
He went in on the eastern border of Afghanistan with one, he was one man, he had an infantry squad with him, and in less than six months, he had unified the entire Momon tribe of 5,000 tribesmen who were securing the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And they were so effective that Osama bin Laden was on record as trying to target Jim Gant. One guy, that's one Green Beret. Look at what Lawrence of Arabia did, T.E. Lawrence. He unified the entire Badu nation, all of the nomadic tribes of the Bedouins. One man unified so effectively that they defeated the Ottoman Empire and were an economy of force so that Great Britain, France, and the U.S. could continue on the European front. But what do, what, these, like. what do these tribal leaders need that we can give? Because at the end of the day, we're going to look like two extremists. It, it basically right. like a ladies' lunch gossip session. ISIS say yeah. this, the U.S. Army says this. Yeah, now look, this, this is, you know, and you're, again, very good question, and, and it starts by understanding the society that we have to go into. Uh, in my book, one of the game changers uh, is actually meet them where they are, mm. not where you want them to be. That means we have to change our mindset from our politicians all the way down to our military commanders. And you and I have talked about this. Um, We have to really step outside of ourselves, not look at this through a Western lens, and understand that in the areas where these extremists establish their safe haven, these are tribal areas where honor and revenge and feud and hospitality, guess what? Those are the most important areas, uh, uh, the most important elements of these societies. And we have to value that. Uh, We have to value the fact that in these tribal areas, dispute resolution, that's about as far as the government gets. It's just resolving disputes between two warring families. Right now, all of those civil society mechanisms that have traditionally allowed tribes to handle their own affairs, they've been damaged. They've been damaged by warfare, famine, drought, a range of things. And so they've been co-opted by violent extremists. So what it looks like is we have to go in and create space for these resilient leaders to stand back on their feet and reassert themselves at a community level. We have to rebuild trust and let them stand on their own two feet. That's what it looks like. What do they need, though, in order to stand up on their own two feet? Do they need guns? Do they need food? Do they need money? What do they need? Right. So the, well, it, it varies everywhere you go. We call it looking for the sources or root causes of instability. You have mm. to get in there and get a sense of, frankly, what did relative stability in an area like Afghanistan look like when it was when it was relatively stable? And that will lead you to, to understand that, first of all, you know, it may look like they need water and wells and schools, but they don't. What they actually need is uh, agricultural extension agents to come in and help them with hydrology, post-harvest, and soil conservation so that they can get a better harvest uh, harvest product because they've lost their institutional farming knowledge. That two months of food that they don't have on hand now is readily exploited by the Taliban. So a lot of times it's something in the realm of economic development, institutional farming knowledge. Remember, these are feudal systems. Think of it like this. These are feudal systems where you had a, you know, all of the serfs and, and the guys working the land and then a few lords that, that, that actually ran things. Those leaders mm. were targeted and killed by the, by the Soviets and others. And so you've basically got a feudal system with no lords, no institutional knowledge, no dispute resolution capability, and the, the leaders that are still there are in hiding. So you've got to get in there and create coercive space. You've got to punch the extremists in the face, push them back, and create some operating space for these resilient leaders to step back into the fold and do what they were naturally born to do. But they will not do it if there isn't some kind of coercive force from the bottom up creating that local space. So let me ask you this. 
how can we be in a how can we make sure that we're not in a situation where we are literally at an auction if we say we will train you this and then they come back and and say well the taliban are offering us to train us even more or if we give you say $10,000 a week taliban are offering me 12 well that's always a problem when you're dealing with an insurgency mm. you're always going to have you know everybody's battling for the support of the populace right i mean because that's the golden prize is whoever the populace supports uh the other guys are going to be irrelevant um so what we found though and this again this isn't theory i mean we did this literally uh for years in these villages from 2010 till about 2013 what we found was this if you go into a community and you and you and you live and you work among those people like our green berets would go in there and they would tell these villagers listen uh we're going to work with you to help you stand up on your own and when you can stand on your own we're out of here you you we will stay as long as you want us mm-hmm. but you we're going to leave you to your own community one that resonates with an honor based uh clan society that that's something that autonomy is a very powerful element the next thing we would tell them is listen when when the intimidation and retribution comes visiting and it will because you're going to start to threaten their their relevance we're going to be here with you we're going to go to the rooftops with you we're going to fight bleed and die with you if necessary to defend your village again in an honor based tribal society that goes a very long way much further than words uh of some you know guy in body armor saying hey i'm here to help you i'm from the government how do you like me so far mm. um so when you demonstrate that kind of connective empathy through physical action it's very powerful and then finally when you demonstrate through empathy and connection at a local level and understanding of what keeps these people up at night maybe it's agricultural shortfalls maybe it's a hydrology problem maybe there are no elders left in the village to resolve disputes when you start helping them think through those problems and build that local resiliency we found a proportional level of pushback in areas where that happened they pushed the taliban out on their own because guess what these are tribes that want to be left alone hmm. and when they get their autonomy back they will push back on their own what's the biggest criticism you've received from your strategy from the guys well, at home from from the, the politicians and and I'm sure you've presented your case to them well in in true vip fashion you've already brought up some of them just through your questioning and I appreciate that because mm. it just it just tells me how much you've thought through our interview but but let me tell you a couple that you haven't asked all right and I actually put these in my book well the time's not um, over yet how do you know <laughs> but carry on. I know, right? You you're not done yet with me, but um but I I'll, I'll save you a little bit of trouble and I'll tell you that I did put these in the book as well cuz I want, you know, look, I I don't have all the answers here. What I'm trying to do is to tee this up for conversation and 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 where where we made mistakes along the way a lot of them. But let me tell you what one of the most um typical criticisms that comes out of this dip and it usually comes from the diplomats, mm-hmm. the state department, the economic development folks. They say, "Listen, You green berets what you're doing is you're out there in the rural areas and you're raising your own militias or you're raising militias that are beyond the reach of the of the legitimate state and they are actually causing more turmoil than they're solving you know and and look those are legitimate concerns i mean you know you look at a place like afghanistan and iraq and you know a militia is is a real problem um and they're everywhere everybody's got guns but the reality of it is um two thirds of the methodology that i'm proposing here two thirds of what i propose in my book mm. is not about militias and local defense groups it's about 
understanding local society where the bad guys set up shop and working with what's there and what's real, not what we want it to be. And when you do that, people are much more compelled to stand up on their own. And that means two-thirds of what we're proposing is bottom-up economic development, low-tech agriculture, dispute resolution, tribal dynamics. These are the things that our warriors, our diplomats, our economic development experts, our politicians need to start paying more attention to instead of, hey, we're going to go prop up the Iraqi government and uh, you know, set up conditions for them to ally with Iran. I mean, that's insane. Uh, we need to get better about understanding local realities, and that's, you know, that's often overlooked, I think, by the critics. This program is about going local and getting a, a degree of empathy with those folks who could potentially resist. But it starts by understanding them and not trying to make them out in our own image. Okay. You use the words local and reality. So let's really do that. Because now the war is just not offshore, it's onshore. Your philosophy, your strategy using game changers. Uh, we're having a war at home. How can we apply game changers to the lone wolf at home on U.S. soil? Yeah, that's a great question. and They're all great a, questions. <laughs> the first thing is, um, you know, one of the things I talk about as a game changer in the book is our use of narrative, Fip, I mean, or our lack of use of narrative. And you and I have talked about this before. Uh, look, ISIS and to a little bit lesser degree al-Qaeda, they tell a great story. Their mm. narrative, their master narrative that Islam is under attack by the West and that it's the duty of every Muslim to defend it, that rings true around the world. Muslims far and wide answer that clarion call. Mm. Uh, ISIS also portrays a very romantic picture of the return of the prophet, of the ushering in of Judgment Day, of the defeat of the Christian infidels, that's us, uh, over in the, in the Middle East, and just mm -hmm. this utopian vision of a restoration of Islam's greatness in the world. It is a beautifully spun narrative if you watch any of their propaganda. But guess what? It's no different than what Goebbels did with the Nazis to persuade a modern nation-state to kill six million Jews. It is myth entrepreneurialism, but they are good at it. We don't even have a narrative. We do, if I were to put the, the top ten generals in the U.S. military in ten different rooms mm -hmm. and ask them why we were in Afghanistan, I'd get ten different answers. Um, we don't even have a narrative that addresses to our own people what we're doing in this war. So the first thing I would tell you with the lone wolf and with what I put in my book is we better get real serious about this issue of narrative and story because these guys are kicking our tail with it, and they are recruiting from you know Peshawar, Pakistan to San Diego, California – Right. You know, twenty some thousand guys a month, while we can't even get a Twitter feed on, you know, on on a diplomatic Facebook. So, page. do we need to send a green beret into the mosque in San Francisco, or New Jersey, well, it, or or? I, or you know, I, I think we do need to address the narrative and the story at every level. I don't think it's a Green Beret going into a mosque in, in the States, hmm. but I do think we need to occupy the storytelling space across the world. And, and the reality is that, you know, it's just like – look, it's just like storytelling here in the United States. You know, when you want to persuade or influence someone to do something they otherwise wouldn't do, you tell them a story. There's an emotional connection to it, uh, and people act on their emotion and their perception, not on logic and rationale, especially when the stakes are high. And right now, we are not even competing with the narratives that these young people are being told. And if you don't get into that space with a competing narrative, then you cede the ground to the opponent. 
own it, and that's what we've done. So that's the first thing when it comes to the lone wolf. If you were given the opportunity to compose a narrative to the U.S. Muslims, what, what would it consist of? Because that's what we lack, right? Yeah, it is. And, 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 and we think, need to get to the grassroots there and here. Well, the first thing I would do, and I'm not dodging your question, I'm really not, but I want to be careful about how I answer this because I think that the narrative mm. that needs to be crafted for the Islamic Ummah or the religious base, you would actually need to bring in representatives of the Islamic Ummah to craft that narrative. I think that's part of the problem is we've tried to craft a narrative that has not been informed um, you know, by Islamic voices, and 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 that's tough. And it, it, it obviously that's a very contentious thing to do. But if you're going to if you're going to resonate like that, you have to. Now let me set that aside for a second. Uh, with that in mind, you know, a narrative in a place like where the Sunnis um, are being occupied by ISIS and exploited by ISIS mm. in places like Afghan, rural Afghanistan, I would craft a narrative that basically um, conveys that Americans and, and, and Westerners are working with tribes and clans to help them stand on their own, to help them stand on their own against villains and thugs that are trying to take away their way of life. And they are loosely supported by their government in doing so. In other words, I would craft a narrative that emphasizes local autonomy of these tribes and clans to do what they were always born to do. Um, and we haven't been doing that and because they, they, they thrive around that autonomy. But I want to bring it local, as I said. And, and the one thing, I thought we didn't need a narrative because when America saw the video of the beheadings that ISIS did, yeah. to, I think Christian volunteers, they're volunteers. That's it. And, and the beheading, the guy set on fire. Um, I, don't, I didn't think that we needed a narrative. How, how can we produce a narrative that's more powerful than that? Because well, at the end of, all, of the day, setting someone alight, uh, killing someone like that, is anti-Islamic anyway. It is, and that's your narrative. I mean, that's certainly one of your master narratives that you go to, is that you demonstrate that what they're doing is not only anti-Islamic, it's, anti, it's, it's unhuman. It's inhuman. But has uh, that produced a, a, a decrease in the lone wolf attacks? I don't think so. Has it, well, has it changed the mindset? We haven't even tried to do that. We haven't even tried to do that. And frankly, if you look at, at, if you look at um, World War II, when mm. the Nazis were just starting uh, to get their war machine underway, um, there was a there was a documentary produced called Why We Fight, and it absolutely cut the legs out from the Nazi war machine in terms of the global support they were getting because it held a mirror up mm. to the atrocities that they were committing. We have not done that. If you look at the Obama administration, and look, this is an apolitical problem. Both sides of the aisle, in my opinion, are inept in how they're dealing with this problem. But the Obama administration has ignored – they have refused to even acknowledge that this great enemy we face are Islamist violent extremists. So I find it hard. I, I just don't buy into the notion that we've created a narrative when we can't even call our enemy by his name. That's right. the first thing you do is you, you call them by their name. Mm -hmm. You demonstrate what their strategic objectives are, and then you show how they are defying that at every turn and how they are going against their own religion. For starters, I believe that would really take the wind out of their sails uh, around the world, and I, I, I just don't see us doing that. And I also don't see us – the other thing that we're not doing, I don't see – U.S. Muslim leaders of their Muslim communities standing up 
and, and, and being visible and, and, and being anti-ISIS. I don't see that. I couldn't that. agree more. And, yeah, and I that's agree where more, I, at the same time, I think, I think how, how, how hard are we really trying to recruit them right now? In other words, how hard are we trying to bring them into that narrative? I don't see that either. I, I don't think so either, and I don't think this administration's doing that. Talking about this administration now, yeah. what do we need in our next leader? In our next leader, we first of all we need someone who's going to call this. And I'm ta- let me let me just speak from a national security perspective, mm-hmm. and more specifically, let me speak about Islamist violent extremism. We need a, a commander in chief that is going to call this enemy who he is: Islamist violent extremist. That is going to call them out for for not only for who they are, but who can clearly articulate what their strategy is, what they intend to achieve, and explain it to the American people. That's number one. Number two. We need a commander-in-chief who will step back and listen to the guys who have been on the ground in this fight at the grassroots level who are not the traditional counterinsurgency, you know, uh, muckamucks who are in there just giving – it's the same people. He needs to listen to the group of folks who have been in the trenches, who know this enemy well, who look at this enemy every day, and who can articulate what's really going on because we're still fighting this war exactly the same way 14 years later, uh, and we are moving toward fiscal insolvency and a very, very – big strategic defeat if we don't change the game. So it's got to be a a leader who's open to listening to a new approach and is open to recognizing that we're losing this war and that we have to adapt. You know, you call them Islamic violent extremists, right? Islamist violent extremists. Okay, Islamist violent. And and if I was a Muslim in America, but I was an anti-American Muslim, yeah, I would actually take those three words as a compliment. Because Islamist, you define my religion. Extremist, well, the more extreme I am and as a Muslim, uh, the better I am supposedly and closer to God. Violent, well, that's just what I'm prepared to be in order to be an Islamist extremist. Well, you know, by the same They actually might take that as a compliment. They might, but you, you know, I've heard that before. I mean, mm. I've even heard, I even had a guy, I think it was after an interview that you and I did, he called me up or he emailed me, he said, hey, you should be careful about calling these guys lone wolves because you're actually encouraging them because, you know, the wolf is a proud animal. And they're lying. I'm like, okay, I get it, mm. but here's, here's the thing. Um, you know, the Nazis, we, we called them Nazis, but it, frankly, in Germany, it was the Nazi party, um, you know, and they didn't push back from that at all. We called them what they were. I think rather than rather than getting wrapped around the semantics of the title. But the semantics of the title is part of the narrative that appeals to these lone wolves. Right. But let me let me finish is I think that we should do a better job of Mm. explaining exactly what it is they're about and what they're trying to achieve. For example, Islamist violent extremists, violent extremists simply means that it is anyone who who basically follows a, uh, a system that if you don't believe what they believe, they will pursue a system of violence against you to to coerce you to believe it or kill you. Um, and I think, you know, it is what, that's what they do. And when you hold them up that way, uh, that it takes away a lot of the nobility of what they're doing. It takes a lot of, away a lot of the ideology of what they stand for. And mm. we need to hold a mirror up to these guys and show this is what they say, this is what they do. This is what they say, this is what they do. Because the reality is when you do that, uh, these guys don't look anywhere near like the 12-foot boogeyman that's hiding in the corner. I mean, there's a lot about these guys that's actually quite vulnerable. 
Um, but but we're not doing that at all. And we're, that's we're, where we're, we're afraid to say it. And that's where American marketing has to come in and play on that vulnerability. Maybe call them pokey pie. Um, Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Uh, yep. And use that vulnerability to de- degrade them. Now. Absolutely. Should yep. the next leader, because you know we're obviously not winning this war, um, should the next leader continue to be commander in chief, or should that be delegated out? Because it just seems to be dragging on this war. No, I still, you know, I still firmly believe in the constitutional assignment of the mm-hmm. president as the commander in chief. I believe that I'm always leery. I mean, even though I'm a career soldier, and, and at times I get very frustrated with the civilian leadership, but I, I, I still believe, having worked in, up in a lot of these places around the world, where frankly you do have a general or or some other military guy who's extremely in just in charge of the war and, and the, the civilians are left out of it I really think there's a sense of accountability that, that by having our civilians in charge that is really something we should always hang on to um, what here's what I would say to that though mm. this is really important I don't know when exactly this happened but at some point along the way fairly recently uh, presidential administrations uh, got away from the aspect of built, and when it comes to uh, national security, of building on what the last guy did for the good of the country. Hmm. What I've seen in the last few administrations, especially in this war on terror, is that every administration has been keen to show what they're doing on their watch and just scrapping what the guy before them did. That puts the nation at risk, and it's irresponsible. No matter what party you're in, you have an obligation to put country first. Uh, to think about our national security, to call the enemy who he is, Mm. because the first constitutional charter to the President of the United States is to provide for the common defense of this country. And I don't see that happening. And that's where I think the real problem is, is that these different administrations are becoming so partisan that they're more interested in undoing what the last guy did and showing what they did on their watch. And that's frankly not only irresponsible, it's un-American. Now, you've seen some of the candidates. Which candidates stand out? Um to you that would make great military leaders? Uh, Well, you know, right now I'm obviously watching. uh, I don't think this current administration is going to make any change. It makes me sad to say that because I just I don't see them doing anything strategic. So when I look at the new field of folks coming up, uh, from what I'm able to tell, I think, you know, I think, frankly, Ted Cruz mm-hmm. um, has the potential to take this seriously. Scott Walker has actually inquired a little bit about the, what I'm putting forward in the Game Changers approach here. Um, and, and, you know, another guy that I think has the potential is, is Donald Trump. I mean, one of the things that he's doing is he's building a degree of momentum right now. He's building a degree of energy, and he's looking at new solutions. Here's my concern. Right now, every single one of the Republicans, what they're touting is this. Hey, let's go get those guys. Let's go bomb those guys. Let's go take their oil. It's the same tired, industrial-age, top-down playbook Mm. that we've been using since 9-11 started. And it hasn't worked in 14 years, and now my son's getting ready to go fight this thing. And frankly, all Americans deserve better than what these guys are spouting out right now is just some kind of political byline. They need to step back and learn about the enemy and get serious about it. And to that degree, I haven't seen anyone do that yet. Maybe you can get me in touch with them, and I'll help that out. No, I definitely will. Uh, Do you think the lobbyists and the outside parties compromise the integrity of these candidates? I think they compromise the industrial war machine. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think that that is a big animal that frankly feeds this whole top-down approach. You know, I mean, when you start when you start putting tanks, you know, in in tribal society, 
um, and you got guys riding around, and I'm looking like RoboCop, and, mm. and the people that they're, you know, this supposed population-centric approach, you know, these guys are dressed like the 11th century. That just tells me that the industrial war machine is in full swing, and it's driving the train. So in that degree, yes, because it doesn't open our minds up to what realities are in these places and how we can change the game to adapt and work within those realities. There's yeah. just no and, and I've tried through my nonprofit zip to go up to the Pentagon and, 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 and other interactions since retiring a few years ago, and there's almost no interest in bottom up stability, low tech agriculture, high stakes negotiations, storytelling, the kinds of skills that our warriors and law enforcement frankly need to come in below the noise. Mm make connections at tribal and clan levels, and help people stand up on their own. There's just no training for it at all. Like all of the training that we had yeah. um, in 2009, 2000 has been wiped out now. The sequestration, we're still training on this same top-down attrition-based model, um, and it's not going to work. Very no, quickly, not gonna work. very quickly, we're coming to the end of the show. I want to ask you something. We, yeah. As a public, we seem to be getting war fatigue. Uh, in fact, you know, in, in, in my introduction, and, and, and you said it as well, it's almost like we've forgotten we're at war. It's almost like we are fighting a crime, you know, with the lone wolf and terrorism. There's not that mindset that we're a nation at war. Yeah, um, you know, uh, shortly after 9-11, mm. I think a, a well-intended President Bush said from the halls of Congress, you know, Americas can go on about its business while law enforcement, special ops, and intelligence personnel fight this war in the shadows. I think yeah. those days are over. Um, you know, my book is all about getting this war. We need 21st century victory. So my question to you is this. How can readers help you from the grassroots level in tackling this war against terrorism? Well, the first thing is that people can go and, and read my book at thegamechangersbook.com, and mm. they, can, they can download that book. It's going to be coming out on 9 September, or they can enroll right now, and we'll let them know when it comes out next week at a reduced rate. But that's the first step. Get the book. Look at what we're up against. We have outsourced this war into the shadows long enough. It's time for every American to read, to consider, to share, and to acknowledge what we're up against here because this threat is not going away. And until Americans start demanding from our politicians in 2016 that they take this seriously, we're never going to change the game. And it starts, I think, by reading this book. And, again, it's at thegamechangersbook.com. They can start there. Well, the threat's not going away, but what happens to you after this book? Are you going to go away? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, I'm going to stay on this problem set. I, I'm convinced that this is going to take a long time to yep. shift it, even if we get results in 2016. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, this is a multi-generational war. Also, don't forget, all our men and women who have been fighting this longest war in our nation's history, they are trying to transition back to civil society, and we have a Herculean problem on our hands. 40,000 Army soldiers alone in the next year and a half to two years are coming out of the Army unexpectedly with dust on their boots, trying to figure out where they're going to go next. Our nation will be judged on how we bring our warriors home with honor. So I'm going to be very focused on that, a, a book called Mission America. I'm going to be having come out pretty soon. Hopefully I can get on the show and talk to you about that. And lastly, I'm going to be focused on taking Green Beret lessons into the civilian sector and teaching our community leaders and our private sector leaders how to think and act like a Green Beret, because frankly, in this age of trust depletion, I think we need it as a leader skill. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Steph. It's a real honor. I appreciate you having me on. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Get the book Game Changers at GameChangers.com. Your comments and your follow are so very welcome on my Twitter account at VipJazzwell and my Facebook page, The Vip Jazzwell Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.